Good morning, First Covenant friends. It is so good to see your faces. Welcome back to another Sunday sermon and welcome back to my living room here on the island of West Seattle. Take some time to settle in, grab a cup of coffee. I've got my trusty golden retriever named Honey joining me this morning. So grab your stuffed animals uh, and let's begin with a word of prayer. I'm reading this morning from Art Nelson's A Book of Prayers. Art is a mentor and a close friend of mine, and it brings me so much joy to read these words of his. I like to pretend that when I'm reading them, he and I are actually praying together. So would you join me and Art in prayer? This one is called, For Sitting Ready in Church, Waiting for Worship to Unfold. Only you know, Lord, what is in the hearts of all of us who have said yes this morning to your call to worship. We seem to hear the unstifled sighs of those who are just happy to sit for an hour and rest. The week has been that demanding and that much of a strain. We know that it is all right with you, for you ask us to come for rest and for the unshouldering of our burdens. For some, there is a new appreciation for life because you have restored their joy or their peace of mind. For others, there is the hope that today will be the day when the darkness rolls up on one side and the light stands shining on the other and they can say how good it is to be alive. May this be a day of spiritual daybreak for all of us. Grant world leadership the wisdom to figure out how to stop bloodshed and threatening speech, how to give courage and new hope to oppressed peoples, how to find spiritual plenty for the world's spiritual hunger so that one day we may all raise a great chorus of joy. Amen. When I was teaching at North Park University in the Biblical and Theological Studies Department, the spring semester was drawing to a close, and I was preparing to give a final exam to my Gospels class. It was early May, a beautiful day, much like this one, and I was sitting on the patio at the Starbucks across the street from campus. I saw my department chair from across the road, practically sprinting towards me. He waved away cars, basically vaulting over the street, coming to a sudden stop at my table and immediately sank down into one of the empty chairs. I waited for him to catch his breath and then asked what in the world was going on. Bad news, he said. The professor who was supposed to teach our summer course intensive can no longer do it. I've been running around asking colleagues if they know anyone who's available and willing to teach it. Are you by any chance free to teach this class? It starts the day after finals end. You mean two weeks from now, I asked. I joked, I will teach anything you want me to, as long as it's not a class on Paul. Paul and I do ju just don't get along. His face fell and he sheepishly replied, well, it is a class on Paul. But I promise you, if you take this class, you can say anything you want to about Paul, anything at all. I did end up teaching that three week summer intensive 
four days per week, four hours per day. And it's true that I came to a new understanding of Paul. My colleague did let me say whatever I wanted, but Paul and I have come to a mutual understanding. I don't wanna say just anything about Paul this morning. I want to share what I find to be good and truthful and life-giving from his writings. I was listening to a podcast recently on one of my daily socially distanced walks. And one of my favorite podcasts was on called The Bible for Normal People. Now I like the Bible and I happen to consider myself a normal person. So this is right up my alley. In this particular episode, the hosts, Pete and Jared, interview a Canadian pastor who leads a theologically diverse congregation. The pastor was sharing that he had planted this church with the intention of honoring theological freedom, even if that meant that growth was slow or that some people might be uncomfortable. When Pete and Jared asked him how he managed to accomplish this rich theological diversity, the pastor replied that his community tried to read the Bible in a very specific way. Even if they came to different conclusions about the text, and they often did, that was okay, because the goal was to read the Bible towards unity, not towards uniformity. The pastor continued that seeing the text through the lens of unity instead of uniformity helps his congregation focus on what's at the core of our faith, the things that keep us together, the hopes and dreams and visions and purposes that hold us in relationship. He said that if the center holds, the need to agree on every last bit of doctrine and dogma can fade into the background or simply be let go of altogether. I came away from this interview pretty inspired by this community that holds together even in disagreement and intention. And it resonated with me that we can read and discern together what our text is telling us, looking for things that keep us united rather than for things that could force us apart. These letters of Paul are a tricky thing for me because they are some of the earliest writings in our New Testament. Before any of the gospels were written, before any of the narratives of Jesus's life and death and resurrection and ministry were penned, Paul is writing the first theology of the New Testament. Paul begins his writings as early as just 15 years after the death of Christ. And this letter to the Corinthians is likely written in the mid fifties in the common era, about 20 years after the resurrection. He writes this letter to the Corinthians from Ephesus after he had stayed in Corinth for roughly 18 months. Corinth was a major city at this time, having been rebuilt by the Romans in 44 BCE as a trading port. The church in Corinth represented a wide range of people from many different social groups, both Jew and Gentile, and a diversity of socioeconomic statuses. At the time Paul is writing, he had left the church in the hands of a few of his fellow apostles, people that he mentions by name, like Apollos and Priscilla, Aquila and Gaius. But Paul is hearing reports 
that this church that he had planted is now experiencing some conflict among its new members. Shortly after greeting all of his friends, Paul immediately launches into a litany of corrections, which is not the kind of letter that I want to receive from my friends. But Paul deems it necessary to critique this new congregation. In the first few verses of our passage today, Paul is not happy that this community is separating into factions, with different leaders having influence over different people, essentially breaking the church into smaller cults. In the podcast that I mentioned, the pastor reflected that, this, that his church really began, began to experience conflict as it moved into a new stage of ministry. When they had been a church of mostly young adults, there seemed to be little to argue about. But as new members joined the community and as the original members began to have children, there was a need for a Christian formation program and a need to explain their belief to new believers. They began to ask, if we can't always agree, how will we decide what to teach our kids? And how do we communicate the gospel in all of its complexity to the next generation. In Paul's time, this new generation of followers and leaders was a real source of conflict. Mixing Jews and Gentiles caused all sorts of problems, changes in ritual purity, disruption of Jewish food laws, the question of circumcision and Roman cultural practices of sacrificing to other gods. All of it was called into question, and all of it caused turmoil in one form or another. In these new communities, it was sometimes hard to distinguish what was central doctrine to faith in Jesus and what was not. It just goes to show you that there has never been a moment in Christian history that was immune to theological conflict. Even people one degree of separation away from Jesus had trouble deciding what to believe about him and how. I'm sure that our current situation of splits and schisms and painful fractures and thousands upon thousands of individual denominations would not surprise the early church in the slightest. In verse 10, Paul appeals to the church in Corinth to be in agreement with no divisions among you. In some translations, this first phrase comes across as Paul appealing for new believers to literally speak the same thing. This is difficult for me because I'm not terribly keen on belonging to a community that insists on everyone parroting the same lines like robots. I'm of the belief that enforced theological uniformity doesn't actually create the kind of transformative community that we might think it should. Simply believing all of the same things does not transform people. It never has. In my experience, ideological purity and the use of litmus tests for inclusion and participation robs people of expressing their full humanity, including their doubts, their fears, their confusion, or perhaps newfound inspiration. I'm a full-on theology nerd. I do this for a living. It's basically on my business card. But even I think that too rigid of a theology is dangerous. And I'll tell you why. 
Theology comes out of our personal or communal encounter with God, creating depth of meaning and nuance to what we've experienced to be true. Theology gives language to mystery, articulating in metaphor what we can only begin to comprehend. Theology has the ability to make the experiential abstract, but also to make the abstract experiential. This is a beautiful thing. But in all of this, the gift and the joy and the knowledge, we have to remember that theology was created for humans, not humans for theology. If we stand and are willing to die on the hills of rigid theology, what we really hold an allegiance to is our own understanding rather than an allegiance to Jesus. I've come to believe that if we insist on the purity of belief and uniformity of behavior, all we'll ever worship is ourselves. Back in verse 10, there's another translation that reads as Paul asking this fledgling church to speak with the same lips. Just poetically, I already like this translation better. But I think it's also more nuanced and perhaps is more encouraging than corrective. If this translation is correct, I don't see this as Paul demanding uniformity, rather empowering the second generation of followers to a sense of unity that transcends their difference. In verses 11 and 12, Paul addresses the issue of disunity in the Corinthian church. He calls into question these factions that separate themselves based on who they belong to. Paul writes that some claim to follow and belong to Peter. Some claim to follow and belong to Paul. And even more claim to belong to other disciples. Paul says that this division does not bear good fruit because this community isn't clear about whom they really follow and to whom they really belong. This belonging piece is really important to Paul, especially in the complex world of the first century. With so many competing identities, the most important sense of belonging in these early churches should be to Jesus. If we all belong to Jesus first and foremost, then we can all speak with the same lips about the shared vision of who the church is called to be, the hands and feet of Christ in God's kingdom. If we are all secure in our belonging to Jesus and we speak with the same lips, we have a communal understanding of the good news that Christ's death and resurrection was for the purpose of the restoration of the whole world, the healing of all wounds, the reconciliation of all peoples. On another walk, I was reflecting that perhaps this kind of unity could be difficult right now when we're all dealing with the ongoing reality of this pandemic. To be honest, unity is easier when you can all be in the same room, when you can hug and share a meal and then maybe argue, but then hug again at the end. Speaking with the same lips is easier when you can listen to each other in person and there's no Wi-Fi or computer issues to get in the way. 
but I think Paul's words can still be good news if we see them as encouragement for our broken context. I think knowing to whom we belong is a good reminder that can inspire us to be the kind of church that we are called to be in this turbulent time. We speak with the same lips when we in our own houses pray together and share together the body and blood of Christ, broken and shed for the salvation of all. We speak with the same lips when we continue to support from our own neighborhoods the needs of Capitol Hill, offering food and care to our homeless and less fortunate neighbors. The time and talent and treasure that all of you invest into that purpose and that vision says volumes about the unity of our congregation and the unity that we feel with this city that we call home. We speak with the same lips when we join our African-American brothers and sisters in lament over the pain and suffering that they continue to endure at the hands of an unjust system. The body of Christ, acting in unity, aches when one member aches, weeps when one community weeps, and demands liberation and wholeness for all who bear God's image. The good news is we don't have to be in any kind of theological uniformity to do any of those things. We don't have to have the same atonement theories or debate Greek participles or enforce a human-made concept of ideological purity to belong to God. In his letter to the Romans, Paul writes that neither life nor death, nor angels nor demons, the present nor the future, height nor depth, nor anything in all of creation can separate us from the love of God. I believe that with my whole heart. I also believe that if we are united in God's love, rooted in belonging, and centered in Christ, there is nothing that can separate us from each other either. Even in the confines of our own homes, far apart in body, there is nothing that can keep our hearts and our souls from being held together. There is nothing that can sever our belonging to God and our belonging to each other. Rachel Held Evans, a theologian and writer, died a year ago this past week. Before she passed, she inspired millions of people to be part of a larger story, to find unity instead of uniformity. Much like Paul, she encouraged people to first belong to Jesus and then to belong to each other. She urged people to find common ground and to speak with the same lips for the glory of the kingdom and the good of all God's creatures. She was a guiding light for me, a voice I return to when I feel lost or scared or lonely because she always directs me back to the community that I call home. Speaking about her own upbringing and her parents and the community that she found in her adulthood, she writes, they reminded me that Christianity isn't meant to simply be believed. It's meant to be lived, to be shared, 
to be eaten and spoken and enacted in the presence of other people. They reminded me that try as I may, I can't be a Christian on my own. I need a community. I need the church. The good news this morning, my friends, is this. Even in our current circumstances, there is unity to be found and there is belonging to be celebrated. You belong to God and we belong to each other. We are united in a shared purpose, one voice, one call, one set of lips, and we can still live out that purpose. Indeed, we already are. So take heart, my church, my people, my community, my friends, because the center will hold, and one day soon, we will together raise a great chorus of joy. Amen.